There's an ongoing ritual that happens uh, in our family around mealtime. Not Thanksgiving mealtime, just ordinary mealtime. It's kind of silly, I suppose, but everyone in our home is painfully aware of it. When we have family dinners, and this probably happens three or four or five times a week if, if, if we're doing well, Lisa creates a wonderful meal and has kind of a small buffet uh, line that stretches kind of across the stove and the countertops, very standard sort of thing. She, all the food is there, and uh, she places a stack of plates at the beginning of the line. Again, pretty normal. Ever how many people are there, that's how many plates are there. If there are four of us there for that meal, she puts four plates, five, five, etc. She's done this for years. She makes great meals, and all we have to do is go through the line, put the food on our plate, and eat. It's really not that hard. And I can't explain it apart from just my own hard-headedness, my inability to learn, or my inability to remember. But almost every single time, not every time, almost every single time, just as I go to go through the line, I reach up into the cabinet and get my own plate and start and go through the line. And then I realize, oh, there's already a plate there for me. I have no idea why I do this, but I've been doing it now for almost 25 years. Here's the picture. Lisa has done all of the work. All I have to do is enjoy it and say thank you. That's it. Again, I don't know why, but I have this habit of putting myself in the way of what has been done for me. And because I forget that it was done for me, it does not end in thanksgiving. I don't think Lisa would mind me saying... In fact, I'm sure she's happy to tell you herself. This drives her nuts when I do it. Drives her crazy. Makes her mad. It's as if she thinks that, that I think that I'm now participating in this process when she has done it all for me and all I have to do is enjoy it. I'm sure that there are marriage applications to that illustration we'll deal with later. But for now, and what I want us to see from Psalm 115 is this principle. Is that God is the one who has provided for us. Our response is to give him praise and thanksgiving for his grace. Of all that he has provided for us. I want to suggest to us this morning. Particularly those who have faith in Jesus Christ. For his people. Those for whom Jesus died. Is that we are constantly prone to forget God's role in our lives. And when we do that. We replace him with something else. Either our own thoughts, our own imagination, our own work, or someone else or something else. And we give our thanksgiving to that instead of to the Lord. Now this is certainly true in our day, but in reality this has been true throughout the ages. Ever since sin came into the world. When sin came into the world, our eyes left that of the glory of God and turned inward to ourselves to where we could compare ourselves to everyone else. And I suggest this morning that we are, at our core, even as Christians, we are spiritual forgetters. That's what we are. That's what we do. We forget and then we replace. And throughout Scripture, and I'm sure in our lives, even this morning, that this is a reality. So let me ask you this morning, as we are now fully in the Christmas season, all of us have high hopes, high expectations. This is the most wonderful time of the year, or at least it's supposed to be, or at least we hope it's going to be. Do you really believe 
that it's God's grace that will allow you to enjoy this season and all other seasons? Truly, who gets credit for the blessing in your life? That's what the psalmist is dealing with this morning. My prayer for us today is that God will remind us again of his ongoing great care over every aspect of our lives and that our response will be that of thanksgiving to him. So in order to remember two points this morning from our passage. First, let's embrace our present struggle to remember him. Embrace that it's real. We have a struggle to remember him. But then secondly, embrace God's future promises to always remember us. Our struggle, his promises. All right, back to Psalm 115. Let me read verse 1 again. It sets the tone uh, for the whole psalm and in many ways, all of Scripture. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You know, this verse has been quoted in many places throughout the ages. William Wilberforce, when legislation was passed in English in England abolishing the slave trade, these were his first words. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Shakespeare quoted this in King Henry V. And we have always been quoting it because it really is the battle cry of the Christian heart. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give the glory. For those of you who remember John Sartell, our former uh, senior minister, as you walked into his basement, and he had the greatest man cave ever, but when you walked into it, above the door was this verse. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. What you need to know from Psalm 115 is that this psalm was part of the worship service of ancient Israel. Every year during the annual Passover meal, this song would be sung. The psalm, all words of this would be sung in Hebrew. All of Israel would come together and they would remember that God is the one who had provided their salvation. That God is the one who had taken his people out of slavery in Egypt and moved them into the promised land. When Moses entered into Egypt to call up the people of Abraham, it was God who had orchestrated their deliverance from Pharaoh. When the firstborn were struck down of the Egyptians and all those who had the blood over their door frames were allowed to enter out of uh, slavery into the promised land, this is the song that was remembered. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You know, why were these words sung? Why in the context of worship would you sing this over and over and over again? And it's the same reason that we sing hymns today. It's that as we repeat them, year after year, Sunday after Sunday, God forms them on our heart so that we will be people who are constantly remembering the truth that it's always been God's grace, His deliverance in our lives, that we would never forget His role in all things. So their worship is like our worship. It's designed to affect both our heart and our mind. So that we would be people who would not forget what God has done. When Israel was in trouble, they turned to the Lord and they would see his deliverance. They cried out to God for help. In the days of Hezekiah, when God's people were faced with the invasion of Assyria, 
is one of the darkest days in Israel's history. They cried out and God delivered. And then this psalm would be sung by the people. Not to us. Not to us. But to you. Your name. Give the glory. It was never their ingenuity. It was never good luck. It wasn't their military strength. It was God's grace. Their success was because the creator God of the universe was gracious to them. The scripture is shouting, don't forget it. Don't forget it. I want you to notice the tension that exists in verses 3 through verse 8. And I think it's important for us because what we see is on one hand, the God of the universe who can do anything he wants, all that he pleases, God is able to do. And on the other hand, we have this description of idols that are taking place. The creator God is seen here as being unlimited in his power, in his ability, in his love, in his kindness. There's nothing that he cannot accomplish. All of his intentions he is able to do. He's not bound with any limitation. We do not need to worry about whether he is able or we don't need to worry about what his intentions are. As we examine scripture, we see that this creator God, who is unlimited in his power, only wants what is good for his people. See, this morning we can take great delight over what it is that God wants even this morning. I love verse 3. It's fascinating in light of all the Bible. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And this, of course, begs the question... What is God pleased to do? What is it that pleases him? What does God want? What does he want this morning? And the good news for us all, as Robert preached last week, that what God wants is for us to know the love that the Father has for the Son, that he has given to us. What pleases God is to love us, and he's able to do it. What pleases God is to redeem his people, to save his people, to send his son Jesus for his people, to continually open our eyes again and again and again to his grace. His plan is to transform our lives from selfishness to true life of bringing honor to him. His intent is to reveal himself to us, and he is able to do it. This is our God. You know, when we hear these words, we all agree, amen and amen and amen. God loves us in Christ and he always has. But it raises the question again for me as I meditated on this this week. Why are verses 4 through 8 in the Bible? Why do we need these? And I think it's important here to know that inside the heart of every one of us, Christian or skeptic alike... That our hearts are longing for something that has been created to provide for us our ultimate meaning in life. That's what this is about. The Bible calls this act idolatry. We talk about this a lot at TCPC because the Bible talks about it a lot. Idolatry is the replacement of God's position of grace. It giving our praise, giving our allegiance, giving our thanksgiving to those things which God has created rather than to him. Again, inside our hearts, even this morning, we are willing and yearning to give our hearts away to lesser things. 
I've heard it said that our idols are whatever we daydream about. And we say to ourselves, if I just had that, or if this were just true, then everything in my life would be great. I would feel good about myself if only this might happen. And again, that battle rages in our hearts all the time. In my Sunday school class this fall, we've been through the book of James. And James chapter 4 is really a difficult passage. Where James refers to the people of God as being spiritual adulterers. And he calls them out. As yes, your faith is in Christ, but yet you want something else. John Calvin says about this verse and many others, that our hearts are idol-producing factories, that we can't get enough of the world to make us feel good about ourselves. That is, we want Jesus, but then we want everything that Jesus created instead of Jesus. What I want us to see this morning is that in our quest to remember God's grace is that there is a battle, and there's a battle inside of our heart, and it's real But notice the psalmist's way of dealing with this battle. It's brilliant. He literally makes a joke of everything other than Yahweh himself. He's saying in these verses, verses 4 through 8, that all those things that entice us, where we use our imagination to feel good about ourselves, he says, consider them. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have throats, but they make no noise. That is, just imagine whatever it is apart from the Lord to recognize that he is the one who has made all things, so therefore everything else apart from him is worthless. So just imagine this morning, what if you have job, family, wealth, friends, home, children, vacation, meals, etc., all that you want. And God does not grant you the ability to enjoy them. And they have turned into something else. But rather when we see that God is the one, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give the glory. Then all of his gifts to us can be recognized as recipients of grace. That's the point. These good things that God has given to us are all to be seen as gifts from him to his children. And our response is thanksgiving to him. Verse 8, I think it's one of the most straightforward verses in all the Bible. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. The idols that we create in our heart are worthless. If you trust in them, you become worthless. There's no life here. We want to find life in the created things when we have been offered the creator. So again, let me ask you this morning. What do you need to be happy? What do you need to be satisfied? What do you need to be fulfilled? Is Jesus enough? He is. That's his promise to you. Will you be honest during this holiday season that inside of all of our hearts, there is a battle That yes, we want Jesus, but we also want a lot of other things too. And those all are good and fine when they are received through him and by him. See them, though, as danger. So again, in our quest to remember first, we embrace our struggle. It's real. There's a struggle. But then secondly, embrace God's future grace. Look back at verse 9 through 15. I love this. 
Notice the psalmist's over-the-top declaration of all that God will do in the future. The psalmist repeats himself, and the purpose is to make his point perfectly clear. Verse 9, trust in the Lord. Verse 10, trust in the Lord. Verse 11, trust in the Lord. He's urging the reader, in whatever circumstance you're facing, trust that the God who can do all that he pleases will continue to work for you. You see, these verses are to create a a spirit of confidence inside of us. A spirit of, yes, dependability, but also a spirit of, as I trust him, my faith in him grows stronger and stronger and stronger. Not confident in ourselves, of course, but confident in his promise that he will be with us in the future. God is pleased to provide for his people. Dr. James Boyce, a legendary PCA pastor who passed away a decade or so ago, he said in his commentary about this, he said, when something is stated in Scripture one time, pay close attention. When something is stated in Scripture two times, pay very close attention. When something is stated in Scripture three times, drop everything you're doing, give full attention, study, Ponder, meditate, memorize, and joyfully obey whatever it says. That's what this passage means. People of God this morning, in our struggle to remember God, do whatever it takes to see his grace is real. Go forth in confidence knowing that he is trustworthy. Now, The theme of the psalm and why its message is to be repeated over and over and over is that the God who has been faithful to us in the past has not changed. His character is consistent. His grace for tomorrow is real because we experienced it yesterday. He will provide help in the past. He who provided help in the past will do so again in the future. Verses 12 through 13. He will bless. He will bless. He will bless. God will not forget us. God will not forget us. God will not forget his people. So we go forth in expectation of his grace. You know, one of my favorite stories, excuse me, of the Old Testament, loved by all children and adults alike, is that of David and Goliath. We love this story because it's the ultimate upset It's about the weak beating the strong. It's like uh, Goliath and Alabama football. They're just big, strong, evil, and bad, and somebody's going to come along, destroy them someday. Um, But really, when you think about David and Goliath, ultimately this points us that David needs a savior and that God is the one who will deliver him. But if you read that narrative... And you get caught up in the details of the story. There's something that's always fascinated me. And if you remember the story, there was a time when David is pleading with King Saul. And he's asking for permission to fight against Goliath. And everyone's laughing at him. His brothers are telling him to go back home. King Saul's like, give me a break, you're a little boy, and this is Goliath. David had a great answer, though. And he said that he had been a shepherd for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear had come and attacked a lamb, he struck it and he defeated it. And now 
as I face this enemy, I will strike and defeat it too. What was David saying? Because I had trusted God in the past, and God had always been faithful to me. Whatever I'm facing in the future, it's the same God, the same grace, and the same power. I can trust him now. The God who has been with us in the past is the same God who will be with us tomorrow and the day after that. Since Jesus has saved us, he will continually be for us. Again, my heart this morning, my prayer for us this morning is that we may say along with the Apostle Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? That is his promise. Will you remember today that his grace is real? If so, then we will gather this morning around this table in a spirit of thanksgiving of what he has done and what he will do. After church today, I suspect that all eyes at the Randall House will be on me and as I go through the buffet line. I suspect there will be a stack of plates, and I hope, especially today, I will remember to use the plate in front of me. But you know, even if I forget, the meal will still be there. Even if I forget, the food will still be good. And that's because the host is gracious. And that's because the one who provided the meal loves me and loves to give what is needed for me. As we prepare to come to this meal, you need to know that it is not dependent upon your perfection to come. It was needed upon Jesus' perfection to establish it, and he did. So as you come this morning, this meal of the Lord Jesus is a feast for imperfect people. It is not for those who never fail. No, it is for those who do fail, and their only hope is in him. This meal is for those, only those, whose hope in this life comes from the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, even now. Amen. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to come around his table. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you that your promises to us are yes in Jesus that you do, in fact, love us, that you continually provide for us, that your grace is real. Father, I pray for us as your people this morning, with all that you have called us to do, with all uh, of our duties and responsibilities, Father, remind our hearts afresh this morning of who you are. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. Amen.